Good morning. So our precious friend and sister Sandy left. She's got an urgent situation. We do um, announcements every month, and they're all in your magazine. And so I'd like to take this little little slot of time where we'd normally fill it with announcements, and I want to pray for our Sandy instead. And the verse that came to mind when she dashed out the door is from Exodus 17. And it starts in verse 10. It says, So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites uh, were winning. Then Moses' hands grew tired. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Our Sandy, and probably other women in this room, need us to be the ones that hold up her hands. And so that's what we're going to do right now. She's tired. She's weary. She feels like she's losing a battle. So let's pray for her, and then I'll speak. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful that you are so present with us. We pray for our dear friend and our sister Sandy. We pray for her precious family. And Father, we pray for victory. Help us, Jesus, not to walk out of this room and forget about her needs or the people that need our prayers. Let us be faithful. And, in, and, and remember, as we lift those prayers up, we are literally holding their hands up in the midst of battle when they're about to give up. What a timely reminder as we talk about hope today. So, Lord, we commit her and everything about this situation to you. In your name we pray, amen. Um, So, years. I'm going to tell you a little brief story. Um, Are you hot? Because I'm hot. I'm like a woman that's 49, and I'm always hot, so I am not a good, like I am one constant hot flash. Last night I was sitting down to dinner at the table, and my husband's like, you're sweating. I'm like, yes, I know. Thank you. Don't touch me. Um, And that's why I'm your marriage speaker, because I'm so good at it. Okay, so um, years ago, we had one child, a daughter, and around four or five, God opened the doors for us to be able to get involved in fostering a child with the option and the hope and the prayer and the dream of adopting. So as best we could, we explained to our then five-year-old that we were doing this thing and we wanted to adopt and this is how it would work, but we wouldn't know exactly if we'd ever, you know, the first baby that we get would be the baby that we could adopt. We weren't, you know, we wanted to try to prepare her as best you could. So one night, it was about three in the morning, And uh, Delaney came into our room, which was very unusual, so I was convinced she was going to throw up or something. So uh, she she came over and tapped me, and I was like, are are you okay? What's going on? She said, Mommy, I don't care if it's black or white or a boy or a girl. I will love it. (laughs) And I was like, could you have waited to tell me? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, I'll be right back. And I went and cried, but I was like, she was getting it. It was very exciting. So in short order, we were taking the classes, and a little baby girl was born. And she 
uh, through a series of events, ended up in foster care in a friend's home because we weren't licensed yet, but we knew the friends, and so they were in touch with us. And after she was a couple months old, we were allowed to have her um, come visit with us. She couldn't sleep the night or anything like that, but she was allowed visitation. So we visited with her from the time she was about two months old till five months old. When she was five months old, she became TPR'd, which means her parental rights had been terminated. There was So then she, in the system, um, in the foster care system, that meant that she moved from a foster child to a child that was pre-adoptive. That meant that she was a, there was a very strong possibility that we'd be able to adopt her. So we had then been visiting with her every day for three months, hanging out with her all the time, the whole deal. We were very close to getting our foster care license. In fact, my husband's stuff all went through the system without a hitch. He got his fingerprints back. That was all good. All our applications were good. Our... Our home inspections were good. It was all, we were just cruising along, except my fingerprints got lost. So when she, when there was a hearing for her to move from pre-adoptive to, I mean, from foster to pre-adoptive, I went that day because they had, the caseworker had said, you should just go. The same judge is the one that oversees the hearings, so it's good for him to see you and, and see your face. Went to the hearing. My parents happened to be in town. My husband was out of town uh, leading a mission trip out of the country. And um, went to the hearing. These things are like, I mean, they are doing a 1,000 cases a day. I mean, you are in and out of that courtroom in about two minutes. So I go in, sit down, caseworkers next to me. My parents are sitting behind me. I have a letter from my husband who's out of the country. I present the letter. We start talking. People that I've never met before start talking about this little girl. And they said, well, so-and-so is very interested in her. Names I've never heard before. I'm like, who? The caseworker is going, who? And then the judge looked at me and said, are you that family? I said, no, I'm Delina Lominick. And they're like, well, why are you here? And I said, I explained the whole deal. And, and I said, but the only thing that's holding us up is that my fingerprints haven't come back. My husband's have. So the person that was wanting this other family to um, have the child said, well, I don't even know why she's in here. She's not even a licensed foster care parent. She has no say in this. And I'm like, what is happening here? <clears throat> and the judge said, well, I, I have to agree with you. Um, my job is to get this child into a secure home um, as quickly as possible, and this other family apparently is ready for her, and you're not. Next case. I laid in the back seat of my car as my dad drove us back home, and I cried all the way home. In one, less than one minute, my world had gone from hoping to hopeless. And um, I remember going home and um, just trying to make sense of it. I could not understand why that happened or what was going on. And I talked to a friend um, and said... You know, I guess it's because let me explain to you on, on another note that when she was a baby, she was the cutest, happiest, easiest, funnest, most adorable, little precious nugget in the world. And so I'm like, that's it. They're going to meet her. They're going to love her. It's going to be over. They're never giving her back. So a friend of mine prayed with me over the phone that day, and she said, I just know that God isn't done with this story. 
And so that was on a Friday. And on Monday, they called and said, well, they, they changed their mind. Are you still interested? I'm like, yes, she's not a puppy. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, tomorrow we celebrate her 15th birthday. And she is here today. Our Raina is right there. She'll be 15 tomorrow. <laughs> and Vanna White in the denim jacket next to her <laughs> is our Delaney, who many of you have been praying for, that's been at FSU. And she's the one that came stumbling into my room at 3 in the morning, saying, I don't care if it's black or white or a boy or a girl. And she has loved that little girl fiercely. In a sisterly way, though. Like, she still picks on her, but if anybody else picks on her, then she goes and beats them up. She's the only one that's allowed to pick on her those ways. So, anyway, I wanted to share that story with you because there are moments in our lives that feel incredibly hopeless. Incredibly hopeless. And so today we're going to talk about the power and the beauty and the reason for hope. I love that we serve a God that understands that we are forgetful and pathetic And um, all through his word, he chooses to show us people that rely on themselves over and over again. And he keeps reteaching and reteaching and reteaching. And he chooses to use people like me, which that's crazy, but he does. And you, which is even crazier. (laughs) But, you know, I've read through the book of Exodus several times and When I read the story of the Israelites, I kind of get a little frustrated with those people because God does one amazing thing after another, and they're like crazy miracle things. I mean, they're, you know, they're not like, oh, I didn't get a parking ticket. They're like, it's raining bread. Like, and then they're like, we don't like brah. I am tired of brah. So then he like, birds fall out of the sky. And they're like, we're thirsty. You know, I mean, so remember that when your kids do the same thing, that they're in good company because we all do it. So um, he, but I love that he gives us hope through his word and he's very honest with us. And the passage that Sandy read, I, in the magazine, if you look at the top of um, the page, I have John 16.33 printed there, and it's in the Amplified Bible, and I love how they've worded this. It says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace. In the world you have tribulation and distress and suffering, but be courageous, be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have overcome the world. My conquest is accomplished, my victory abiding So I love that there's the end of that verse, that he didn't just say, it's going to be hard. And that's it. He said, it's going to be hard, but here's what I've already done on your behalf. So that's what we're going to talk about is that other half. I've been married almost 21 years now. April 1st, 1995, um, I walked down the aisle and was filled with great hope. And I don't know what I was really hoping for, I just had this idea of what I thought it should be. Does that make sense? Like, but it was pretty unsatisfactory, pretty quickly. (laughs) 
like, I don't know what I was hoping for, but this was not it. <laughs> and so I realized that I married an actual human being that was just as messed up as I was and that he wasn't going to fix all the things that I thought needed fixing and he wasn't going to read my mind and know what I wanted for Christmas and that he wasn't going to instinctively know how to put the throw pillows on the bed the way they're supposed to go. So very rapidly, seven years later, I remember sitting in my kitchen feeling very hopeless and at that time having two little girls. And I was wondering, am I going to be a single mom? What's ha- my world was falling apart, literally, around me. So everything I'd put my hope in was gone. And now it's just me and God, and I'm sitting there with a journal saying, I don't know how to make sense of any of this and what's supposed to happen next. Everything that I had put my hope in had changed. It wasn't what I thought it was, except there was one thing that had not changed, and that was the God-man who said, I have overcome the world He was still the same. He still loved me the same. He had been there the whole time. But I had taken all my hope and put it into lots of other things. And wanted to, I'll be honest with you, I wanted to be known as a great, perfect wife who had it all together. He was a pastor. We did youth ministry, and I kind of felt kind of good about, you know, people looking up to me and all those things. So I threw all of my effort and energy into being the perfect wife and the perfect mother instead of a child of God. I I didn't put enough energy into that part at all, and I came up empty, really empty. So what do we do when we get to that point in our life where we really do feel helpless and hopeless? And I'm just going to tell you, this: the when I talk about this stuff, I don't want you to think, oh, well, you know, she was so spiritual, this was easy. I'm going to be honest with you and say that all of these things that I'm sharing with you were born out of a lot of pain. They were born out of struggle and emotion, and there was hard, hard weeks and months following all of this, as all of this was unfolding in my life. So these are the verses that I held on to in those first several days and months. Hebrews 11.1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, faith is the assurance, the confirmation of things hoped for that are divinely guaranteed. I chose to put my hope in Christ, not in man. Now, I didn't go, now that, let me just preface that by saying, when we were moving forward in our relationship and trying to kind of pick up the pieces, that doesn't mean I didn't have any hope in my husband. Does that make sense? I'm not saying, well, I just, you know, he blew it, so everything's going to God. God's going to have to deal with you. You're a loser. That's not what I mean. I mean, I trusted God to do the amazing, miraculous work that he was doing in my husband. And I took my hands off of that and let God do what he needed to do. And instead, I did the second verse, which was is 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It says, love bears all things. Regardless of what comes, this is in the Amplified Version, believes all things, looking for the best in each one, hopes all things, remaining steadfast during difficult times, endures all things without weakening. When I finally placed my hope where it belonged, I, couldn't, I could believe the best about my husband and about our marriage because I knew God would be at work in Matt's life and I could be his biggest cheerleader. 
And by the way, while we were going through all of those things where I was initially going into it thinking, boy, I sure hope God fixes all these things that are wrong with him. Guess what God did? Surprisingly, he showed me I have some problems. (laughs) I know, I was shocked too. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I didn't think so, but I've been making a list of all his shortcomings, so let's focus on those, shall we? Yeah, isn't that just like God to keep us humble? I was talking to a group of ladies the other day, and I was saying that one of my things that I'm really good at is listening to a sermon, and in the middle of the sermon going, boy, I hope so-and-so is hearing this. I'm going to send this on tape to them. Tape, what am I, in 1980s? (laughs) I'm going to send this over the Internet to them. There we go. All right. And then the third verse is Hebrews 6.19. Again, this is from the Amplified because I love how they kind of expand on um, the words. It says, this hope, this confident assurance we have is an anchor for the soul. It cannot slip and it cannot break down under whatever pressure bears upon it. It is a safe and steadfast hope that enters in within the veil of the heavenly temple that the Most High, I'm sorry, that most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells. Those first several weeks were really, really hard. Really hard. Jesus was doing tons of stuff. I was learning tons of things. I was growing. I was changing. But I had to also constantly remind myself that my hope was in Jesus first. My hope was in Jesus first. And I spent a lot of time resisting the urge to jump back in and take things over and hang on to things and and be bitter and unforgiving and all that stuff because I am like the Israelites. I see amazing things over and over and over again, and I forget the next day and say, I don't like quail, right? So lastly, I want to share just a few very brief things about how God takes things in the Bible, and he exchanges those things that look hopeless in a way that gives us hope for Quick illustrations. One is Sarah. It says in Genesis 16, Sarah was barren in a culture where being barren was, in their minds at that time, it was the worst possible thing, not to be able to have kids. And yet that was not a hopeless situation because just five short chapters later in Genesis 21, a 90-year-old Sarah gives birth And if you remember, or if you've ever heard that story, when they found out she was going to give birth, she literally laughed. They laughed at the thought of it. And God did amazing things in a hopeless situation. We talked about the Israelites briefly at the beginning of the talk. And in Exodus 1.11, it talks about the oppression of the Israelites. And it was hundreds of years of oppression and slavery And God didn't just take them out. They didn't just sneak out of Egypt. God marched them out triumphantly after performing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. They stand at the Red Sea, which is not a pond, by the way. God miraculously parts it. And then because he's God and he can do it, and if you look in Exodus 14.29, he says, they walked across on dry ground. 
Isn't that a cool little detail? They weren't slushing through anything. They were like walking across, little, maybe a little sandy, a little bit, not much though. Because that's how God does things. Going from this hopelessness of slavery into the beauty of a new life and a new land and a new beginning. Third, third illustration, Joseph, one of my favorite, favorite characters in the Bible, without hope. His brothers didn't just dislike him. They were going to kill him, and instead they figured out a way to make money. (laughs) You know what? We won't kill him. We'll sell him as a slave. So we see in Genesis 37, 24, he is literally thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. And then four short chapters later, God tells him in Exodus 41, I am going to set you over all of Egypt. I'm not just going to get you out of this situation. You're going to eventually save the lives of the very people that tried to kill you. Amen? She's tracking with me. That's what God does. Do you think Joseph ever in his wildest dreams dreamt that that would be what God had for him? And yet God does amazing things. He, we cross on dry ground. He sets him over all of Egypt. And then the most beautiful, favorite part of the whole Bible, Jesus, they're standing at the cross. He says it is finished and he dies and his believers fall apart. They've lost all hope. And Jesus has tried to tell them over and over and over and over, that is not the end. That is not the end. And so in Matthew 28, they go weeping and crying to his tomb. And the angel says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. And that's why we're sitting in this room, girls. We serve a God that is the ultimate definition of hope. So before I close, I want you guys to just close your eyes for a second. I know some of your stories, and a lot of you right now sitting in this room are without hope. And you're tired And you feel like there's nobody around you to encourage you, to cheer you on. So I want you to just, this is what I do. I imagine kind of scraping together with my hands all the broken pieces of whatever it is that I'm struggling with and dealing with. And I pull all those pieces together And I walk them to the feet of Jesus and I lay them down. And so right now I want us to turn in our hopelessness and lay those things at his feet. So just take one minute to do that. Lord, we live in a world that feels very hopeless. If we watch the news and we listen to the radio for any amount of time or we read articles online, just feels dark. It feels hopeless. And then you throw in on top of that just our struggles in our marriages, with our children, with our families. Lord, we thank you that you alone are our hope. And Father, these women in this room, 
I pray that you would reach into their worlds and lift up their arms, give them great hope and confidence in what you can do. And, and Father, I pray that they would be reminded when they're so tired at the end of the day, I pray that you would remind them that you are for them. You are for their marriages. I pray that today would be the beginning of them being able to walk in freedom from those things. Thank you for this time. Thank you for being the same God that raised your son from the dead. Thank you for hearing these prayers. We love you, and we do place all of our hope in you. In your name we pray. Amen.